You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. So we've been in Judges for the past couple of months. Something that we don't like to talk about a whole lot is actually being judged. So I was talking to someone this past week, and they said, wow, way to really bring people back into the church, a series on judges. That's what everybody needs right now in the midst of a pandemic. And I said, that's true, but this has been one of my favorite series thus far that we've ever done at South Point. It's been, it's been fantastic. It's been encouraging. It's been convicting. Uh, it's been life-changing in some ways. Uh, but we don't want to talk about judging. In fact, we try to avoid judging at every turn. If you have kids or know about kids, you know that if you confront them on something, if you try to bring judgment to them, what do they do? It was my sibling. They blame shift. It wasn't me. It was somebody else that made me do it. And then when you become a teenager, you begin hiding your paraphernalia so you can't be judged by your parents. Anybody there? Anybody remember the 60s and the 70s? Yeah, like we, we did those things. <laughs> Y'all did those things, right? I was born in the 80s. But as you become an adult... Then it's like we make it a little more spiritual. So we start claiming Matthew chapter 7. Well, you can't judge. Jesus says you can't judge. And so our culture says we want to be uh, judge-free zones. We want to promote tolerance. That's what the culture says. And the church says, you know what? That's okay. We don't want to judge anyone. We want to accept people. And we don't want to talk about sin. We'd rather just kind of skirt around it. And that's because we hate judgment, So we find ourselves in the middle of a multi-month series on the book of Judges, and I think we've lost sight of what it actually means to judge because we spend most of it, we're like, okay, let's, you know, those are stories uh, that I'm maybe not familiar with, and there are some parts of those stories that are interesting or maybe even entertaining. It's like, oh, let me walk away with some of those truths. But the heart of Judges is that God is judging his people. And so far in Judges, what we've seen is the grace and mercy of God in in response to his people. But today in Judges chapter 9, what we see is God's like, all right, I've had enough. Go ahead and let yourself continue down this spiral that we've talked about. We don't see here in this chapter today really nice feelings about God. It doesn't end uh, really beautifully. It doesn't. God's like, this is just judgment. And so I don't have anything to tell you about, hey, here's, here's how you get out of judgment or here's how you avoid judgment. Today, we're just talking about the judgment and the wrath of God. Most people are like, well, let's, let's, let's just talk, let's take this chapter. I've had, had some folks this past week, how are you going to discuss this chapter? Are we going to talk about idolatry or war? Uh, basically, how do we avoid judgment? And no, we're just going to talk about the judgment and the wrath of God and what that means for us. So Judges chapter 9, hopefully you're you're there, you're almost there. If you're in Judges 9, say, got it. I'll start. The first six verses say this. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, went to Shechem. Now, so far what we've seen, real quick, just a, a, a brief recap. The, the, this is talking about the Israelites, the people of God. And Jerubal, who is that again? That's another name for Gideon, that's right. So we saw last week where Gideon, bad dude. You can go watch it on Facebook Live or podcast, whatever you want to do. But I've got to pick up and, and I want to be done. I know we got kids, it's kind of crazy. So uh, just like hunker down with me for a few minutes and I'll try to get done a few minutes sooner um, before our kids lose their minds. So we have Abimelech, who's the son of Jerubal. And Abimelech actually means my dad is the king. And so Gideon thought so much of himself, he wanted to name one of his sons my dad is the king. 
So that shows you Gideon's pride, Jerubal's pride. So Abimelech means my dad is the king. The son of Jerubal, he went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerubal rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and of your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf to the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house in Oprah and killed his brothers, the son of Jerubal, 70 men on one stone. Yeah, no, great family worship text. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So what we saw in chapter 8 was that Gideon went around, he went to Succoth, and when he went to Puel, and he killed his own people. He killed the Israelite people. What we see here is that Abimelech is even worse. He's a, he's a worse version of his dad. And Abimelech actually begins killing his own family members. So he goes to the leaders at Shechem. He says, who do you want to rule over you? All 70 of these brothers that I have? Remember, Gideon had lots of concubines. He had 70 sons. Or do you want just one? And so the, the leaders are like, yeah, I guess we'll just have one person lead over us. And so he says, okay, great. I'll be your leader. My first act as your ruler is to kill my other brothers, all 70 of them. So he rounds them up. Hey, guys, we're going to have a family reunion and then chops off their head one at a time on one stone. That's the guy that we're start, That's the beginning of the story, okay? So this is Abimelech. Where does he get that idea from? Where does he get his selfishness and his pride? His dad. It was passed down to him. That's how he was raised. So he hires these vagabonds to kill these 69 men because now Jotham, one of his other brothers, what does he do? He escapes, right? And Jotham literally means that Yahweh is perfect. Yahweh is blameless. Now, Israel was not supposed to have a king, but Abimelech made himself king. He said, I'm going to take up my dad's throne. Israel is not even supposed to have a king at this point. So far through the book of Judges we've seen, including Gideon, God has appointed every single judge to bring them back to him. But, but Abimelech says, me, out of my own power and might, I'm going to make myself king. And he tricks the leaders of Shechem into making him king. Now, here's why that's important. Uh, Shechem, we see it right there in verse number one, and we see it all throughout. But if you look at verse number six, the leaders of Shechem came together, and they made him king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Now, if you know biblical history at all, then maybe this sounds familiar to you. If you don't, I'll explain it. In Genesis chapter 12, when God appears to Abram and says, I want to make of you a great nation, Genesis 12, kind of that, uh, that beginning, that foundation of the people of Israel that Jesus even talks back about, it happened at Shechem. That's the birthplace of Israel. It happens again in, jo in Joshua chapter 8. In Joshua, God brings his people into the promised land. And what do they do? First, they come to Shechem and they worship God and God renews his promise with his Israelite people. And so here, Abimelech is made king at Shechem. It's not just happen, saints, this happens. One commentator that I read, he said, this would be like reinstituting slavery in Gettysburg or reinstituting Jim Crow laws in Montgomery, Alabama. This is an abomination to this people. So they begin, they, Abimelech becomes king. Verse number seven. 
When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim. Now, remember, Jotham is the only brother that lived. And he cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over you trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go, go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, This is talking about a grapevine there in the Hebrew, You come and you reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees, so the trees, this is a parable that, that Jotham is telling them. So they're looking, he uses this picture of plants and trees to be looking for a king, somebody to rule over them. None of these other trees want to rule over them. So then he says to the bramble, then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. That basically means a tumbleweed. Verse 15, and the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Drubal in his house and have done to him all his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem because he is your relative." So he's saying, if you have done this in good faith, verse 19, if you, if you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come down out of Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away. <laughs> as you would do if one of your brothers had just killed 69 other brothers and fled and went to Be'er and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So we have here, so Jotham tells these leaders a parable. He says, you, what, you went to all these other leaders and you wanted them to be your king. First he went to, what's the first one he says there? He went to the olive tree. This is what an olive tree looks like. He, they go to the olive tree. He says, will you be our king? And the olive tree says, man, uh, life is too good right now. The olive tree said, I'm making too much money. I'd rather do something else. Next, he says, they, they go to a fig tree. And the fig tree is like, man, I'm too busy making fig newtons. And my, you know, this is just so delicious, I can't do it. Then he goes to the grapes and he says, uh, uh, please come rule over us, grapevine. The grapevine's like, no, nah, man, we're making hearts merry uh, you know, with um, adult beverages. And he says, we, we, I can't do that because I'm making good wine. I'm busy right now. So then he, he goes to the tumbleweed and they go to the tumbleweed, which is not valuable at all. It's... it's I mean, there's not a whole lot for it. The, the tumbleweed, it was just scraggly. It was nothing. It wasn't valuable in the least. At least the other ones were valuable. Some of y'all have fig trees or, or grapes growing at your house. Not, if you see one of these in your yard, you're not like, ooh, let me set those, unless it's Halloween, unless you're doing like a haunted house. But otherwise, these aren't valuable at all. And in this culture, they weren't valuable. These would easily catch fire and burn the other trees around them. Keep that in the back of your mind, this whole picture that Jotham is here drawing of, of Abimelech. He says, they go to the tumbleweed, who's really useless. And what does the tumbleweed do? Who is Abimelech in this parable, if you haven't figured that out? So they go to Abimelech, the tumbleweed, and Abimelech says, yes, I will rule over you. And what does he say right there? At the end of those verses, he says, he says yes, come and find shade under my branches. This? 
Of all the trees that we just mentioned, is anybody going to find shade under these branches? No, this guy's crazy. He says, but I'll take care of you. No worries. The same guy who just killed 69 of his brothers. He said, yes, please come, trust me. But then what does Jotham say right there at the end of his prophecy, at the end of his parable, which is a prophecy? He says, fire is going to come from Abimelech and fire is going to come from the leaders of Shechem to Abimelech. Essentially what he's saying is you're going to get what you asked for. You made him king. He's going to devour you. Evil is going to be repaid with evil. Then we get to verse number 22. I'm not going to read these verses right here. It's a ton of stuff. What we see here is the process of judgment. God's judgment comes. Uh, as it comes down, there's a guy named Gaal. You see him in verse number 26 there. And Gaal takes over, and he kind of leads a charge against Abimelech. Him and Abimelech are, are brutal enemies. But this process of judgment is there. The leaders in Shechem, they revolt against Abimelech. Over the course of a few years, we see it in verses 22 and 23, over three years, they're like, man, this guy is terrible. He is a bad leader. So the leaders of Shechem end up revolting. They follow Gaal into battle. But then Abimelech ravages them. And if you go uh, in verse number 45, it says that Abimelech raised their cities, R-A-Z-E-D. He raised them which means he burned them to the ground and then he poured salt all over their cities, which means he left these people, he killed them, he left their cities barren, fruitless. It was both a religious act and a physical act. It was very difficult to grow crops there after he salted the ground. So he levels them. Then we pick up in verse number 26, sorry, 46. It says this, when all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of el -Bareth. Now, Abimelech is making his trek down. So he's just knocking out. He knocked out Gaal. Gaal is running. He killed all of his men. And so the people are beginning to hear about Abimelech. He's on this rampage. He's burning through towns. Verse 20, uh, sorry, 47. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an ax in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on the shoulder. Now, remember when I said, Keep that in the back of your mind, that picture of tumbleweed. What does he do right here? He gathers it up and lays it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed Abimelech, put it against the stronghold and set the stronghold on fire over them. Sound familiar? So that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. He burns tumbleweed at the base of the tower. So the cities begin to hear about this. Verse number 50, moving from one city to the next. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower and burned it with fire. To burn up the fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they save me. A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to their home. <laughs> well, that was a, an interesting run. I guess we'll go back home now. Abimelech is dead. <laughs> So we see here in verse, in verse number 50, we see uh, the main idea of this passage, how does Abimelech die? Well, there was a certain woman that had a crush on him. So it says there, no, okay, 
It says here, there was a certain woman. What this means is, is, is uh, he may have had a relationship with this woman. So that's why it says there's a certain woman, not just a woman, but a certain woman. We can't say for sure, and either way, it doesn't really matter. But he chases everybody into this tower, into the middle of town. And there's probably hundreds of people, again, in this tower. As they begin to burn, what does she do? She takes the upper part of a millstone, which was, again, a kitchen utensil that they would use every single day in the home. Now, here's what I think is interesting. They're all gathered in this tower. There's probably not a millstone already in this tower because it's not a kitchen, and somehow, <laughs> this, is, this is ridiculous. This isn't in the Bible, okay? This is for free. Uh, somehow she had, I, I just imagine she was in the kitchen like making bread or something. Her husband's like, we gotta go. We gotta go to the tower. Abimelech's on the way. And she's like, I gotta take my millstone with me. And she grabs the upper part of her millstone. How else would she get it to the top of the tower? I don't know. I'm inferring. Don't write me an email on that. So she gets there to the top of the tower with her millstone. Abimelech is about to burn the tower down. And this woman takes this and throws it over the top of the tower and boom, crushes his head. But he doesn't die immediately. That's why he says to his, his, uh, his armor bearer, he says, take your sword and plunge it through me. I don't want my, um, my story as this great leader to go down as a woman kills another man with a kitchen utensil. We saw it a few chapters ago, right? And so to save his honor, as if he had any at this point, his armor bearer then kills him. Verse 56. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the, all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. So, so God keeps his people from utter destruction. Now, remember, how did, how did uh, Abimelech kill his brothers? On a stone. How was Abimelech killed? On a stone. Just an interesting little tidbit that God just kind of brings, and he's like, huh, this is ironic. And we're like, yeah, that is really interesting. But we see here that, again, the parable and the prophecy that Jotham tells is here. He, God returns evil for evil. He destroys the destroyer of his people. Then we get to verse number 10. As a reminder, sorry, chapter number 10, verse number one. As a reminder that God will not abandon his people, no matter how far and how fast they run away from him. Chapter 10, verse number one. We're only gonna look at the first five verses, no worries. And these are very, these are very calm verses, okay? <laughs> After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pooh, that's how you say it in the, in the Hebrew, son of Dudu. So we got this guy, Tola, we're like, hey, my dad's name is Pooh, my granddad's name is Dudu. It's like, wow, this is like, we're getting a whole lot better here as far as our family lineage, but at least it's not a like, okay? A man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. And after him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. Now, what's the significance of the donkeys and the cities, the 30? I have no idea, so we're not going to discuss it. But what we see here in these few verses, we see that God is not going to leave his people. He says, no matter how far away you run from me, I'm still going to pursue you. Now, at any point in this passage, does anybody cry out to God and say, God, please come save us? No. God, because of his sheer grace and goodness, says, I'm going to come save you anyway. 
Who is God saving Israel from? From themselves. <laughs> so in spite of their own idolatry and sinfulness, in spite of their own rebellion against God, in spite of their pursuit of other pleasures and other gods, God says, even without you asking me, I'm going to come pursue you. That's the grace of God. The, the big idea of this passage is not, hmm, how do we parse out 30? We see 30 other places in Scripture, 30 shekels of silver. How does that relate? It doesn't matter. What matters is that the glory and the grace of God is on display in this passage and that he is working for the good of his people, even when it doesn't feel like it. A few implications that we see from this passage. The first one of which is this. Our problem is not out there, but our problem is primarily in here. So if you're taking notes, if you're uh, eight years old, if you're 80 years old, that's the first thing that you can write down, is that our problem is not out there, but our problem is in here. Almost four years ago, I bought a uh, brand new Honda CRV. Don't preach at me about why you shouldn't buy new cars, because then I'll preach to you about um, interest rates. So, uh, so I bought this brand new Honda CRV. It was a 2017 model. I bought it on a Wednesday. Two days later, me and Axel, my oldest, are riding down the road right here at 42. And we're stopped at the red light right in front of Peaksville. Uh, and, and we stop, and, uh, and as normal, as you do at a red light. So then I started to, I started to go. I hit the gas pedal, and it didn't, it didn't go anywhere. And all of a sudden, my lights on my dash start flashing, like emergency, and my car shuts down. Right there on 42. I bought this car two days before. And so I'm sitting there like, uh, all right. So I try to crank it back up, you know, hit the brake, hit the little push button thing, nothing. And I'm like, this is not good. So I put it, you know, like trying to change gears, try to get it going, nothing, nothing at all. Now, so finally, I rolled the windows down. It was blazing hot outside. It was the middle of May. And I rolled the windows down, and Axel starts kind of freaking out. I start smelling gasoline. And I'm like, this is not good. I look at my, I look at my odometer just for fun. I had 256 miles on the vehicle, okay? Brand new car. So I kind of freak out. Cars behind me start honking at me. They're mad. I'm just like waving them around. I'm sitting there like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't. So my, uh, my dad and, and Chris are right here at the church building. So I call them like, hey, I'm out here on 42, just sitting here. Can you come out here? And so they come running out there. I call Honda, you know, their, their car service, whatever. And I'm, uh, and I'm in a real great mood. Like I'm really chummy at this time. You know, my car just broke down in the middle of the road. Cars start going around me finally. Well, we, we finally get it figured out, and they actually gave me a totally different car. <laughs> I took it back to the dealership. I told the guy, I was like, Sonny, because that was his name. I said, Sonny, uh, I, I'm not driving this car anymore. Like, you can do whatever you want to and file whatever. He's like, just give me a few minutes. <laughs> Three hours later, I drive off with a totally different car, brand new as well. It was awesome. Uh, I still love Honda. I still have two Hondas, okay? Like, I'm, I'm good with it. It was something faulty in, their, in the fuel line, where the fuel line goes to some sort of pump or something. It came undone. Turns out it was a warranty thing that they ended up fixing. Uh, tons of Hondas had the problem. So if you have a 2017 model, uh, almost anything, you may want to go get that checked out. Here's the thing. Most of us, when we get into our vehicles, we're taught to be defensive drivers because of what could happen to you from the outside. Like, be careful of people swerving, of not looking. Be careful of all those things that can happen around you. But when I was sitting in my Honda CRV that day, what was happening was internal. I wasn't scared about anything that was happening externally. 
It was my car's problem. It was an internal problem. The problem was not out there. The problem was in here. What, what we see, we, we actually, if you look at the entire passage that we read, we don't see one time the name of Yahweh mentioned. In all of chapter 9 and through the first five, five verses of chapter 10, we don't see Yahweh, the name, the personal name of the Lord, mentioned one time in that entire passage. What we see is a nation that had run away from God. They said, we don't want to be part of this anymore. They were avoiding God. You're like, yeah, but the name of God is there. Yeah, God is there, put in by the author. That's the word Elohim. That's not the personal name of God. That's put in there by the narrator so we can see God was still working. But the personal name of God, so when these people thought about God, they didn't really think about a whole lot. They weren't thinking about Yahweh. He wasn't there. This was a nation who did not want to acknowledge God, who did not want to worship God. They wanted to avoid God at all costs. What, what a place to be. The problem was not out there with surrounding nations. The problem for them was with the nation of Israel. This past week, we had uh, a piece of legislation called the Equality Act uh, passed in, in the House. And some of you may be familiar with this. This week, the Senate is going to be arguing about it and voting on it. The Equality Act would be detrimental for the proclamation of God's word without serious ramifications. It, it would be in your homes, here on a Sunday morning, on Facebook, in the culture. It, it would be deadly for the sake of freedom as religious people, for any religion. It's called equality because it really should be called the Tolerance Act. We want to be tolerant of all people as long as you don't disagree with what I believe. And we think, man, what's happening from the outside to the church is really bad. But my question is, why should we be surprised? Why should we be surprised as the church? Because the church has not been the church. And so we can say, man, we're being persecuted. Were we being persecuted to the, to the point where we couldn't pray? Or did we choose not to pray? We haven't prayed. We haven't engaged our neighbors with the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. That's not the culture's fault. We haven't prayed. We haven't evangelized. We haven't been biblical men and women who are leading our families well. We're the ones who aren't disciples who are making disciples. We're the ones who are not trying to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whose problem is that? That's our problem. Instead, we've been focused on how many behinds can fill these seats. How many dollars can be in our bank account? We're more concerned with leaders that have a magnetic personality, and that guy just really gets me. We're more concerned with really good songs that just touch our heart and make me feel a really good way about God. We're more concerned with denominations than we are about the things of God. We're more concerned with the physical blessings of God than we are with knowing God. Our materialism has blinded us, not the enemy. We've taken good things and converted them into God things. And that's on us. That's not the church's, that's not the, the culture's fault. That's the church's fault. We thought that we could, we could juggle all of these different things. We thought that we could multitask. You talk to folks, we're like, I just multitask. Well, congratulations, you're in the top 1.8% of people statistically in the world that can actually multitask. The rest of us just think we can. And for most of us, we think that we can multitask our spiritual lives 
with our earthly lives, with the idols that we worship. But what's actually happened in the church, since we think that we can multitask all these things, what's happened is we have a really low view of God's holiness. And we have a really underrated view of the depravity of our sin. That's not the culture's fault. The church has not been the church. The church has nowhere else to look except for itself. There was a pastor uh, two weeks ago today who was put in jail in Canada, I think in Toronto, uh, Canada, somewhere up there. He was put in jail for publicly proclaiming the word of God. The state came in for several weeks. They brought their Mounties into the service and sat and listened to this guy proclaim. He was eventually put in jail because they said, hey, we don't want any churches meeting more than 15% capacity. And he said, I'm committed to the word of God. I'm committed to its public proclamation. And us gathering as a people is important. Now you're like, well, we took 13 weeks off back in, back in March, April, May. We did. And that church did too, by the way, because we were trying to figure out, is, is this possible? Like, are we all going to get together? And then we all die two weeks later. What's the wisest option for this thing? But the government came in and they said, we're going to put you in jail. So he was up preaching and they came in and arrested him. Here's what the police actually told him. They said, we wish that we did not have to do this. They said, our governmental system is a jacked up, corrupt system. And there's one woman in all of Canada who is responsible for public gatherings. And if she deems any public gathering of any sort, if there is some sort of medical emergency, then she can put all of those folks in jail for any medical reason, COVID-related or not. Somebody got the stomach bug. If y'all gather and proclaim the word of God, then y'all could all go to jail. This is not that far away. <laughs> These are our neighbors to the north. We the north, that's what the Raptors say by themselves, right? And we can have all of our thoughts on Canada and we can talk about how they're so self-deprecating and we, we, we wish that they were a little bit stronger and all that. But that's the nation right above us where they are putting public proclaimers of God's word into jail for simply gathering God's people and saying, thus saith the word of God. What would we do if that were us? Do we value the word and do we value this Sunday morning gathering enough to say we're going to gather with God's people anyway, no matter what the government says? And I think the better question, other than what would we do, is what will we do? Because we know that these things are coming quickly for us. The problem is not out there. We don't look very different than our society. Where is the distinction between our culture and our church? We say we believe this, but are we living according to it? We say that we love God, but would our lives, do our lives reflect that? The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. The second thing that I think we see from this passage has to do with the judgment of God, and that's that God's judgment is slow, is sometimes subtle, but it's always sure. It's slow, it's sometimes subtle, but it is always sure. We saw, uh, I mentioned this in, in chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years, and then God sent an evil spirit to bring division among them. So God's judgment wasn't like, man, this guy is bad. Boom, we're striking him. His judgment was slow. We see again in verses 56 and 57, 
God eventually made the evil of these people turn on its head toward Abimelech. And Abimelech's evil turned on the heads of these people. It was subtle. It took time. But God's judgment was sure. When we first moved into my house uh, almost eight years ago, I lived about a block that way. If you ever smell some delicious meat, uh, just pull it to my house and bring some sides. And that's what we're doing, is smoking food. Uh, but we bought this house, and the upstairs, the shower door was kind of janky. And it was barely on the upper track, and it kind of was off the bottom track. It wasn't in really good shape. So I did like any uh, you know, uh, solid husband and father would do. I left it until it completely broke, which was about six years later. So for six years, my wife complained, and, and it kind of fell off the rails. But ah, we, can, we can jimmy it back up there, and you know, we'll, we'll get it back up there. And don't, don't kick it. Don't touch it. You know, don't, don't move it too much. And if you slide it, slide it real slow. And just slide. <laughs> but finally, that shower door broke. And I wasn't surprised because I kept seeing it. It was just like slowly moving. It was really subtle. Oftentimes like our sin, oftentimes like the judgment of God, and thankfully often like the mercy of God. It was a slow, subtle shift. And I would encourage you and plead with you this morning, do not let God's long-suffering lull you into complacency. You may be right now in your life, and we may be right now as the church, right here in the eye of the storm. Or think about the calm before a storm. Kids, think about when you go to the beach, uh, if you have really big waves, which I love going to the East Coast, lived on the West Coast for a while, awesome waves. I've, I've uh, surfed in the Mediterranean, awesome waves, been to Hawaii. So we don't, we don't really see those in the Gulf. But if you think about those huge waves that come crashing in, sometimes as the wave comes in, there's like this little, just a second, where it's like, ah, Everything is beautiful. And then, boom, this giant wave crashes on your head. You ever look at the sky, you're like, man, this is ominous. It looks like all hell is about to break loose out of the sky. It's the calm before the storm. God's judgment is coming. It is sure. Do not be lulled into complacency. The third implication that we see here is that God's faithfulness is greater than our rebellion. God's faithfulness is greater than our rebellion. You see, we all want to be, this is why judgment is so terrible uh, for my identity of myself, is that I want to be declared innocent in all of life. I never want to be wrong. I want to be innocent so that I can be guilt-free. I want to be shame-free. And we're all pushing against this, and we all know that that is true. We all are searching for innocence because we all know that something is broken, Everybody, those who believe in Christ, those who are atheists, agnostics, everyone knows that something is broken and we're trying to fix whatever that is. We're all searching for innocence. And here's what we do. Since Adam and Eve in the garden is we try to cover our problems with fig leaves of self-righteousness. We're blame shifting like our kids. We're looking at someone else. We want to cover, I'm not as bad as that guy. Notice what Adam says when God confronts him right after him and Eve take a bite of that fruit in the garden. What is, when God says, Adam, what have you done? What is Adam? Who does Adam blame? He doesn't blame the woman. That was a trick question. He says, it's this woman that you gave me. He turns it back on God and says, my sin is not my problem. My sin is your fault. And ever since the garden, we've been trying to absolve ourselves from sin. And we try to do it with a lot of different things. Our, our culture tries to do it with identity politics. 
or critical theory. The church does it with legalism or American Christianity. But all of these ideals are absent and devoid of the forgiveness that can only be found in Christ. Without the forgiveness of Christ, we cannot experience innocence because there is no scapegoat. After it's your problem, now it's the next person's problem. You may be the oppressor, but eventually someone else is going to oppress. That's critical theory. There is no scapegoat for our culture. We cannot, they cannot experience forgiveness except through Christ. There can be no atonement. There's no final payment without Jesus Christ. And here's the beauty of it, is the fact that we can't cover ourselves in self-righteousness because our problem is not primarily on the outside. We can't just say, do better stuff. Let me fix my hands. Let me fix my eyes. Let me fix my mind. Let me fix where I go, what I look at, the way that I talk, the way that I think, because the problem is primarily internal. The problem is with our souls. It's with our identity. And Christ doesn't come and say, just live like me. Just act better. Just do better. Christ comes and says, I want to give you a new identity. He doesn't say, go to the tabernacle to worship. That's a foreshadowing because Jesus comes and tabernacles with us and empowers us with his Holy Spirit. He doesn't say to us, hey, you can experience a few years of peace like they see here. He says, I am your peace. He doesn't say, just try to do your best and make these sacrifices. He says, I am the sacrifice for you on your behalf. It's only in Christ that we can experience true innocence, forgiveness. He is our scapegoat. He has paid the penalty for our sin. He is our atonement. He is our Passover lamb. You see, Abimelech selfishly made himself king, but Jesus came and humbly made himself a shepherd. And when we chopped him down and killed him, he took the fire of God's wrath so that we could be saved. The millstone of God's judgment was dropped on his head so that we could experience life. He is our true and our better king. We're chasing after these others. We're chasing after a better marriage or more money or a better job or a better house. Salvation won't bring you those things, but salvation will bring you the embrace of a king that you've been looking for your entire life. You see, Abimelech was not the final word on the people of Israel. In the same way that our sin and sorrow and shame is not the final word on who we are because Jesus Christ on the cross says, it is finished. Jesus Christ is the final word. And I would plead with you this morning, friends, that we would humble ourselves before his mighty hand, lest his judgment fall on us. Our problem is primarily with our souls. It's with us. We're seeking a different power than him. Here's what Mark chapter 10 says. This will be on the screen if you don't want to turn there. <clears throat> And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do this for us, whatever we ask. And he said to them, real quick, does that sound familiar? Does our prayer life kind of sound like that? And he said to them, talking about Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. 
but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This is to the church. But it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would first be among you must be your slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for our sin, for many. Jesus was judged for us. He doesn't say, hey, go live a better life. Go live your best life now. He says, I'm judged. I've given you a new identity so that you, you can repent of the old man and you can live out of this new identity that I've given you. He has redeemed us. He has purchased us. The good news of the gospel is that he became a man. He lived among men because we needed a savior. He died the death on the cross that we deserved to die, experiencing the wrath of the father on our behalf. He was in the ground for three days, but then he was raised to life by the power of the spirit. Now he is seated at the right hand of the father, constantly making intercession for us. Do our lives reflect that new identity that he has given us? Or are we under the judgment although it may be eventual, are we under the judgment of God? And I would plead with you this morning to repent and to believe. Repent and believe. We do that, it says right here. If you have a, a communion cup, you can take that. If you don't have one, uh, they're bringing some of those around. I know we ran out. We had to get a box out of the kitchen a few minutes ago. If you need a, a, a communion cup, can you just raise your hand? Put your hand up high, and then they'll... They'll bring that to you. <clears throat> the top piece that's there, it's a wafer and it represents the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for us. Like he tells his disciples right there in Matthew chapter 10, he says, this is going to be you if you want to identify with me. He says, I was broken for you and I want you to be broken alongside of me. This is my identity, not to be strong. That's what the Gentiles believe. He says, may your identity be like mine. May it be broken and weak. That's how we come to the mercy of God, is in weakness. May that be the cry of our hearts. Jesus said, take, eat all of it. He identified with us in life, he calls us to identify with him in death. He says, take up your cross and die daily. He doesn't say, hey, when did you, you took up your cross? Oh, way back then at VBS on a Sunday morning? Congratulations. That's called making a decision. He says, for those who are disciples, he says, take up your cross every single day. As we drink this, we're reminded of his sacrifice on our behalf, but we're reminded that we are called to die to ourselves every single day. If you commit to that, family, I would ask you to take and drink all of it. Father, we love you and thank you for what you have done for your people. We thank you for what you promised to do in and through and among us. You are a good father. You're gracious to us. Father, I pray for those in this room, the souls in this room 
who've never fallen headlong upon your mercy, but may they do that this morning. We repent of our self-righteousness in so many forms. We repent of running from you, of rebelling against your goodwill for our lives. Father, we celebrate this morning that your faithfulness is greater than even our rebellion. Father, I pray that you would use us. Use us mightily for your kingdom. We thank you that you are the rock of our salvation. It is only on your name that we trust. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.